This is episode 007 with Dr. Jack Cruz on Ancestral Health Radio. Learn to align your genetic makeup for peak health, fitness, and longevity with actionable how-to advice from today's leaders in nutrition, movement, and lifestyle. Join me, your host, James Kevin Broderick, as we bridge the divide between modern technology and our inherent ancestral wisdom. Let's take a walk on the wild side. Are you a mitochondriac? If you don't know what that means, no worries. You will be after this episode. Today's guest, Dr. Jack Cruz, neurosurgeon, mitohacker, and author of EpiPaleoRx, The Prescription for Disease Reversal and Optimal Health, joins me on today's episode as we delve deep into the science of light, water, and magnetism. Today's episode is long and dense, and the show notes are even longer and perhaps more dense. Jack and I talk water quality, electromagnetism, and why light or better yet, human photosynthesis may be more important than food. But I think my favorite part of this episode is actually when I hit Dr. Cruz with a not-so-brief round of rapid-fire questions hidden near the end, so be sure to stick around for that. Full disclosure, though, I forgot to plug in my Fancy Pants podcaster mic and the sound quality isn't what it should be, but sue me. What was I going to do? Tell Jack to start over? I don't think so. But in today's episode, you'll learn why the time of year and the light you eat under may make food toxic, how Wi-Fi affects carbohydrate addiction, the three essential pieces of equipment Jack recommends everyone buy, and much, much more. Dr. Jack Cruz is a respected neurosurgeon and CEO of Optimize Life, a health and wellness company dedicated to helping patients avoid the healthcare burdens we typically encounter as we age. He is a member of the American Association of Neurological Surgeons, the Congress of Neurologic Surgeons, and Age Management Medicine Group. And as a neurosurgeon, Dr. Cruz's research has been published in respected dental and medical journals. And his popular blog, jackcruz.com, gets over 150 unique worldwide visitors per month from countries all across the world like Australia, Germany, Russia, and Africa. Welcome, Dr. Cruz. Uh, thank you for taking time out of your busy day to join us here at Ancestral Health Radio. Hey, no problem. All right, let's jump right in. Maybe we can just start off by uh, you can tell us a little bit about your online work and exactly how that is different from most of the other ancestral health community, or at least what is different about it from the rest of the ancestral health community? Well, I, I think the main difference is perspective. The perspective of ancestral health really has always been around the Paleolithic diet, uh, and meaning that it's a food-forward paradigm. Um, I don't believe um, that anything tied to food can lead to a paradigm change. I think it's a step in the right direction, but it's not foundational enough in terms of nature. And for those those of your listeners who don't understand why I have that perspective, we'll just keep it simple. The basis of nature is quantum mechanics. And quantum mechanics is the study of probabilities. It's the study of the subatomic world. And when you understand food the way I understand it, that the entire food web on this planet is made out of photosynthesis. There's nothing on this planet that's not linked to photosynthesis. And I think everybody in third grade learned that when you take CO2 and water and mix it together, 
with sunlight, you make sugar. And that's really what photosynthesis is. So if you really want to truly be a food girl, then you need to understand how excitons are made in chloroplast and how they make food. And when you do not, I have a problem with you. Why? Because that's really the key. And the, the point that I make to people is that light is far more important than food. In fact, if you get light right first, uh, then food falls right in to uh, most things. And it's, it's almost like something that we don't even really need to discuss that much. Uh, the problem is people do not realize just how addicted to their poor light environments they are these days because they don't even think about it as an issue. And that's the real reason uh, I think that separates my perspective from the ancestral health community. And so what, what is exactly your perspective on light and, and how do we better understand its effects on our physiology? Well, that's, that's really a loaded question. I got to be honest with you. I, we could spend probably two or three hours talking about it. Mm -hmm. You need to understand that when most people understand light, they think about Pink Floyd and, and, <laughs> and the rainbow and the seven colors there. What people don't realize within those seven colors, uh, there's frequencies of light that go all the way from 260 nanometers all the way up to close to 800. And each one of those frequencies and even the sub-frequencies actually linked to, sub, uh, to biochemical substrates in the cell. So most people from ancestral health have a pretty good idea about the basic biochemical pathways. What people don't realize is that there's 100,000 biochemicals in a cell that interact every second in our body. Wow. What they don't realize is that frequencies control each one of those. And uh, like just talk about, we'll talk about uh, a simple one to give people an analogy. At cytochrome 1, on the intermitochondrial membrane, there's a thing called an NAD positive and NADH couple. It resonates or it vibrates or it oscillates at 340 hertz. So that means a light frequency, 340 hertz, controls that redox couple in your body. So when you talk about proteins, carbohydrates, and fats and don't understand how that 340 hertz links to that story, you completely miss the whole part of the deal. And that's part of the reason why several of the uh, my critics in ancestral health, uh, I, I actually will tell you this. I stood up at a, a paleo FX meeting like five years ago and someone mocked me about eating a banana on December 31st in the Northern Hemisphere. And I just looked at them and I was like, and this person was a doctor. That's the crazy part. And when you think that there is no biologic toll for that, it shows me that you completely have no idea how a mitochondria works with the environment. And, you know, for the last five years, I've been showing people just how these things link together so that they make sense. It's not that the banana is toxic. It's not that the carbohydrates are toxic. It's at the time of the year you eat it and the light you eat it under actually makes it toxic. Mm. And, and therein lies the difference. And when you begin to understand that light context, I mean, you would think, I always, always thought, that when I dropped a lot of my information into the ancestral health community and the paleo community, these guys would get it quick because I think most of them are pretty bright and they're young, they're energetic. Uh, the shocking thing to me was because some of the things I said were breaking some of their paradigms and breaking you know, some of their business models, that made me controversial. And I don't think this is really controversial at all. I think any farmer can tell anybody 
that certain things grow in certain light environments and certain things don't. So if you try to make a palm tree grow in the tundra right now, lots of luck. But <laughs> effectively, that's what eating a banana is if you live at the 55th parallel right now, you know, in the northern hemisphere. And I just don't think that's controversial. I think it's common sense. But uh, apparently my common sense is not their common sense. Right. So under those circumstances, for me, I live here in the Bay. How would I get to know for myself exactly what I should be eating depending on exactly my location? How is that another loaded question? Or Oh, no, that one's an easy question. I mean, you have a huge advantage here. You can go across the Golden Gate Bridge, go up to Napa, uh, where all the farms are, all the organic farms, and sit down, knock on a, a farmer's door, and say, can you show me your growth chart? And mm. you got your answer. And <laughs> let me tell you something, it's that simple. And I would tell you, if you don't want to be that technical about it, although I'd probably push you to go to the farm to talk to the farmer, because you probably teach a lot. I would love to. You go to the farmer's market. And, and a lot of the farmer's markets in big cities – they actually bring their growth charts with them because they want to show you what they're growing. I mean, they don't want to sell you things, you know, that they had to trade with someone else, you know, just so they can make ends meet. Because remember that this is a business for them. They want to show you what is seasonal for your latitude and location. You know, the real problem that I see with, um, I think, the ancestral health movement and the paleo movement, it's got this label of, okay, this is paleo approved. Mm-hmm. But is it is it seasonal approved? Because right. if it's not seasonal approved, then in my view, it's not ancestral and it's not paleo. And I don't understand why that's so controversial. Uh, I mean, it really ties to the solar cycle. And again, we're back to that issue. Is it the food or is it the light? And you can see where my perspective clearly lies. I really look at the seasonal approach being critical because that's actually how the mitochondrial change programs in our cells fundamentally work to try to keep us healthy and away from my profession. And there's a, there's a lot of talk of bioregionalism within the health community these days too. So that kind of ties into the whole idea as well too. Can, can you maybe speak on that? So for example, maybe for myself, like I have a cupboard full of macadamia nuts, which obviously were not grown here in California. And I may be getting my avocados from Mexico because, again, it's not in season. Are, are we to limit our food choices then? I, I would say it's actually a little bit more complicated than that because you're you're approaching this question with me from a food aspect. I, I told you I think my, my standard answer to you would be talk to the farmers about mm. the, the food growing chart. But here's the interesting thing, and this is where I thought you were going – in my world right now, in medicine, something interesting has kind of cropped up that all hospitals are beginning to draw data on. It actually started with uh, the healthcare change that we had into Obamacare. And, you know, whether it doesn't matter what your political affiliations are. I personally think Obamacare was horrible for the uh, public. But there was a couple of good things that came out of it. And one of the good things that came out of it, it started to force big insurers, especially hospitals, to look at their CPT codes. That's diagnosis codes for things that doctors do. Mm-hmm. And they started to notice there was a link to zip codes. And that linkage to zip codes goes directly to the point that you were going to make. So I'll try to give you a good for example, because you, you told me you live in the Bay Area. What if I told you that just for argument's sake, we had more Hashimoto's thyroiditis in your particular zip code versus say Calistoga. And you would say hmm. as food forward guy, hmm, 
maybe this is tied, you know, to the type of foods that these people are eating in these different zip codes. What if I was to tell you that your zip code had 4G and Calistoga had 3G wireless communications? Do you think that could be the link? Because mm. could that change how things would grow in that area? And not only that, could it change the program that's in your mitochondria that deals with those food electrons that you're eating? And I will tell you right now, the answer is is right now in flux. In other words, no one can say 100% which one is right. I personally believe both parts of those equations, both on the food side and the mitochondrial program are the key, but if you ask me which one is much more important, it's actually the mitochondrial response to the local environment because fundamentally the way, you know, most of the research for epigenetics, especially out of uh, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and probably the leader in the world right now in mitochondrial medicine is Doug Wallace. And Doug Wallace has, has really showed us that mitochondria are an environmental sensor for the electromagnetic radiations in our environment. And we don't normally, especially food forward guys, paleo guys and ancestral people don't think about sunlight as an electromagnetic radiation, but it is, but it's a native one. It's native to the planet. All the things that are around us, for example, if we were to have say a trimeter, an RF meter and a Gauss meter in your house right now and where I am right now, you would be shocked at the differences. And see, to me, that goes to the zip code question. So here's where it gets even more interesting. So if you live in San Francisco in the Bay Area, Mm -hmm. maybe even the avocados that do grow in season for you aren't always optimal. How do you like that? Mm. That's that's where it gets even more complicated. And and I think the reason why people don't like thinking about this, because let's face it, they want to make what they have for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, kind of easy. Yeah. And, and and I think really from a convenience standpoint, I think that's why uh, the food guys don't get too much issue. The, the real issue, and let's pick something we've picked on the ancestral people and paleo enough. Let's talk about another big driver that, you know, recently, especially in all my biohacks in 2016, that I've really focused in on is the low-carb, high-fat guys. Mm-hmm. Generally, I've been associated more with probably those people. But one of the things that that you'll find, people who eat that way chronically 24-7, no matter where they live, they usually will hit plateaus at some point, whether it's a year, two years, three years in, and people don't really understand it. And I think the reason why they don't understand it is because the light environment has a huge impact on that type of template. Mm. So, for example, low-carb, high-fat, in a strong UV light environment is an absolute mistake. Why? Because then you can't activate the change programs in your mitochondria called mitophagy or autophagy. Those are the things that make new mitochondria. So you're stuck with senescent, meaning old mitochondria that are energy inefficient. And the only way they work is when you eat coconut oil, palm oil, you know, and, and, um, you know, fat consistently. Well, the problem is, you, you know, we're designed to live about eight decades and, and maybe even more if we push that envelope. Well, can you live eight decades without doctors if you have senescent mitochondria? Well, Doug Wallace has already told us that answer. The answer is no. You, and in fact, you won't do very well if you try it. And unfortunately, that's one of the envelopes that's being pushed in low-carb and high-fat. Um, 
And the reason I think the meme continues to exist is because people who find that template healthy, or I should say more healthy than not, are people who are obese or if they have type 2 diabetes, because for type 2 diabetes, low-carb, high-fat makes sense. But I don't think what people realize, when they hear the word diabetes, they think, oh, this is excess carbohydrates. They don't really realize the other flip side is, means a lack of sun. See, a lack of sun and too many carbohydrates are one and the same in terms of the photosynthetic yield of the disease. And that's the, the change that I want people to understand. Uh, and, you know, I had this discussion with somebody, a group of doctors. I just talked to a group of ophthalmologists not that long ago about diabetic eye diseases. And you may be interested in this. Mm-hmm. One of the questions that came up in the Q&A afterwards they said, well, Jack, tell me the reason why down here, we're in the stroke belt, we have so many problems with eye diseases. And I said, it's pretty simple. I said, people in the south, when it's the wintertime, they go inside because it's too cold. Because remember, anything below 50 degrees here is considered cold. Right. And the flip side is, when it's summertime, they never go outside because they're inside in the air conditioning. Right. So the answer is, when do they ever see the sun? They bury it. And hence, that's the reason why the problem exists. So it's incumbent upon us as physicians to make that environmental connection and then tell the people, look, this is what we want you to do at these times of the day, and this is how much time we want you to do it. And again, that's based on what their disease parameters is. And you'll be surprised that the, since I've been down here for four years, uh, you know, this place is known as 50th out of 50th in pretty much all health metrics. And people always ask me, why did you come here? I said, well... If I'm batshit crazy, I shouldn't be able to help anybody. And the irony is in four years, I'm helping lots of people here. And I'm doing it without, you know, putting them on insulin, putting them on, you know, the medications that you hear doctors do. And what are we using? We're using nature. We're using light as the driver. We're using water as the second gear. We're using magnetism as the third gear. And that's the template that we push. Once we get those basic things right, then we start talking to about the food. And here's the irony for me. The food down here, most people get, and I'll tell you why, because most people around here are farmers in the rural. They have, you know, it's not been 20, 30 years ago where they had their own gardens and things. So they know what grows down here. But the problem is they go in to buy blueberries, you know, this time of the year, just because they like blueberries. Uh, and when you get people to understand, you know, what the issue is, I've actually found the people down here in the Gulf South easier to deal with than the people I did with in Nashville. Because I think the people in Nashville, when you have a little bit more money, you're a little bit more set in your ways. You're going to get what you want because you want it. And I think when you're sicker, I think you're a threshold for listening. There's a little bit more because one of the things they don't like is they don't like getting popped with those needles every day. <laughs> and they don't want to have big surgeries. So I think it's made an impact. And I don't think the message is difficult for people to hear because the application of quantum biology is very simple. Now, when you want to understand how it works, then it's a little bit different. Of course it changes. (laughs) Well, that's that's when when we got to split your head open. But I I have found even with my, my patients that are relatively, you know, uneducated or undereducated about light water magnetism, soon as they get a little bit of the flavor of what you're trying to do for them, they invariably come back and want to know a little bit more. And for me, I, I look at physicians as educators. 
I think it's our job to give them that little extra. We call it down here in the South Lanyap. That's a little extra on the top. And you give them a little bit more every time they come back. And what you really do then, to me, you're making them a better patient because they're beginning to tap the doctor inside their own head. Uh, and I always point out to them, I said, look, 100,000 years ago, you didn't have, you know, neurosurgeons you could go talk to or doctors that you could doctor. And you're here as a result that maybe what we used to do really does work. Absolutely. And maybe we need to get back to that. Mm-hmm. Okay, for another question then, if light is going to be the number one thing, the number one prescription above all else, for someone like myself who I do do this podcast and I do, you know, quote unquote, biohack my house as much as I possibly can, I also go to work. And where I work is a very, very bad environmental situation where I go to work in a warehouse and it's full of fluorescent bulbs. And for myself, I do eat high fat, low carbohydrate specifically because of my family history. Uh, of diabetes and Parkinson's disease. Yeah. Yeah, I would tell you you should not because of your family history. No. So the fluorescent lights. And you know what? And it's and it's hilarious because I've already I've got them all on that page. They understand. They might think I'm a little wacky, but um, they see me wearing my glasses inside. You know, they see me doing all the things uh, that I can to possibly negate those effects. But what would you say to somebody like myself? Is is there is there another option other than changing out light bulbs and things within my house? You and I suffer from the same problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, what people don't understand, my biggest risk, and I think this is where a lot of people have really misunderstood what I've said about some of the other food gurus that are out there. They need to understand that the way they deliver their message is part of their problem. And I don't mean the words. I'm talking about when you use social media, you use blue light, you use non-native EMF, people don't realize that blue light, non-native EMF, even if you don't eat any foods, raises your blood glucose and raises insulin. So if you have a doctor looking at your labs and you're doing this and you think you need to be in nutritional ketosis 24 seven and you think, Oh, well I'm eating all this food, but why is this still happening to me? Mm-hmm. Well, cause you're missing the big part of the pro- problem. And that's why I get on people like Jimmy Moore because he just doesn't get it. And, and the doctors that he deals with, they don't get it because they don't realize they're divorcing food from light. And what I'm trying to tell people is you can't. Now, where you and I are the same is my job, what I do across the street there every day puts me at huge risk. So when I'm in that hospital, in my operating room, being irradiated by not only blue light and fluorescent light, but I have to deal with x-rays, which are, you have to mitigate more. In other words, that means you have to do more. So like when you follow me on social media or you see some of the things that I talk about on my doctor Facebook page or even on my form, you're going to realize there's different degrees of what you have to do. And why you and I are similar is where you live, your location in the Bay, dude, that's just like being in my operating room. Why? Because you have obedient idiots around you. On average, one person in the Bay has seven wireless devices. So that is equivalent to my fluoro machine in my operating room. And you have to realize when you can control them, the only way you can control them is to find a place where population density is lower. So Mm -hmm. this is the reason why when I explain low vitamin D levels to patients and they don't get it, like you would say, I, I get this question all the time, especially people who live in San Diego and LA, why is everybody's vitamin D low? Every time I go give a talk to physicians, they ask me this. And I said, it's pretty simple. I said, they're all dehydrated. See, what people don't understand is that light 
has to be buried in water. So if, if, if you think about non-native EMF, just like your microwave at home, if you take a piece of steak and put it in the microwave to heat it up and you take it out, what does it taste like? Shoe leather, because it has no in it, right? But what people don't realize, when you live in Los Angeles, even though the sun is good, mm-hmm. you have 10 million people around you utilizing seven wireless devices. So do the math. That's 70 million devices, <laughs> all connected by RF and microwaves. You live in that. By definition, you are dehydrated. Mm. And prove it by just looking at your BUN creatinine ratio. I, I get the big benefit as a neurosurgeon because I get to see their MRIs mm-hmm. and tell from their MRIs what the deal is. So even if I put that person naked on Rodeo Drive every day, their vitamin D wouldn't come up. Why? Because they can't effectively use the frequencies in UVB sunlight, even though they're present in the environment. And see, that's the counterintuitive part of the physics. Because people normally think, well, if I live on the equator and I'm buck-ass naked, I should be okay. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not how nature works. And once you understand effectively what we're doing within our own zip codes, the way we communicate, like this is the good side of technology that you and I never met before we can get on the internet and we can have this discussion so that you can see my perspective and understand it a little bit differently and then you can take this back to your tribe and say hey guys maybe we're not thinking about this the way that we should maybe he's not such an asshole maybe he's trying to point out something we're missing you know and that's kind of what i've been doing for the last five or six years the, the real issue is my message is inconvenient but it's true it's based on the universal laws of physics. Uh, they're not arguable. And not only that, you know, when I go to places and I see people's labs who shouldn't have what they have, I can't explain it. But the functional medicine guys just throw their hands up and put people on, you know, you know, 30,000 IU of vitamin D3 mm-hmm. a day and it doesn't work. And not only that, many times the people get worse. So they put them on melatonin and don't understand why. These things don't work because, you know, in the textbook, it says that's what you should do. And medicine, humans, nature, there's no recipe. The The bottom line is you have to understand how we work within nature. And once you understand how we work within nature, then in the Bay Area, in your, in your warehouse, under fluorescent lights, then I think you become a better mitohacker. Um, mm. You a mitochondriac you begin to understand that you need to do extraordinary things so when you come home from your warehouse i would have you do the same thing i do i go immediately in the pool and the reason i go in the pool it's not just to do ct which is cold thermogenesis but here's the big one for me and you where i'm actually trying to get away and use the water as a faraday cage why since i was being radiated for eight hours just like you are that we need to get a two-hour break where our mitochondria are not being beaten on like Metallica's playing, you know, in our head. Master of puppets. What's happening? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And that's the reason why all these little nuances come up. Yeah, and you know how it's very difficult to get a lot of this information through to people on social media because what people don't realize, uh, and they've been socialized by my profession to believe that everything's based on a randomized controlled clinical trial. In other words, we take a million people, study them, and we give a moderate approach and apply it to everybody. When mitochondrial medicine has been teaching us that everybody's an N equals one because everybody's mitochondria is different. Mm-hmm. 
That means you have to have personal contacts in order to understand really what you should do. And it's very hard to do that on 140 characters on Twitter or on a picture on Instagram or even in Facebook because people are not, they don't tell you everything that you need to know to help. And that's part of the reason why on my website, I have this place called an optimal journal and my long-term members put their personal context in there. And then what I can do is tell them, consider this, consider that, consider that. Because basically what those things are, they are all little biohacks or little mitohacks. And when the person gets to the point where they've done all the little things, then the big elephant in the room that nobody wants to hear is where you live sucks and it's time for you to move. And just so you know, mm -hmm. I faced that myself four years ago. The reason I'm here now is because I realized Nashville was not gonna be a place that I could do neurosurgery consistently for the rest of my life if I stayed in that place. Do you think this was convenient for my kids? Do you think it was convenient for my wife? In fact, I'm still paying for it to this day <laughs> with my wife. But does my wife understand why I made the decision? Yeah, because she sees the people that I'm able to help in neurosurgery and my hospital patients, because without this information, they would never get it. No one would actually tell them how they could avoid a fusion if they just do four to six weeks of changing some things in their environment. So instead of having a big, huge operation where we got to put pedicle screws in, we can do a small little operation that will take care of their problem and teach them how to maintain it by making those consistent changes within the environment. That's that, that to me is what being a doctor is all about. You know, unfortunately these days when you stop putting pedicle screws in pa patients, especially in my profession, you know, your pay goes down because that's what you get paid to do. Mm -hmm. and, and this is the corollary to why I have a problem with the food guys. You know, the reason why a lot of the, the paleo food guys, especially the ones out in California, close to your neck of the woods, mm -hmm. will spend thousands of dollars doing all these labs and nothing changes. And I can't tell you how many people from those famous guys wind up at my site telling me these stories and what we tell them to do is fix the environment first. You don't have to spend a ton of money on labs. Once you do that, then you go from there and then you decide what the next steps are. It's actually easier than what most people think. Okay. Yeah, and in the ancestral health community, I think what it is, is that's where they start first. You know, they are, they're always starting first on the food and that's why. And it's typically because, you know, your information, unfortunately, is still very obscure. There's, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that I still speak to and, and it- Think about what you just said. My information is obscure. Photosynthesis is No, obscure. photosynthesis, on the other hand, is not obscure. However, your information to some people is not available. You know, they may not have the means and they just have not been connected to the right network that has gotten them into contact with yourself. So they they are doing one thing, thinking that they're doing, you know, obviously the right thing by by following their food regime. And then on the other hand, they're living in a city covered, you know, maybe they're exactly where I am. They're in an apartment and their neighbors all have, like you say, 17 different devices, all bombarding them at the same time. And on top of that, they're going from one environmentally controlled environment to another. They're never actually coming in contact with their natural ecology. And right. so that's the idea of the podcast is that we're trying to, okay, so we're not trying to go backwards anywhere. We're trying to go forward, but we're trying to ground ourselves one foot in the modern technology that we have here, the luxuries and the things that we have. And yet we're still trying to relearn those traditional systems or life ways 
that can help ground us again in some of natural ecology, something that in natural law, you know, and for me, I don't have the background or the knowledge or the schooling specifically to, you know, where your brain's at right now, you know, but I'm learning slowly and I'm, I'm trying to deliver this in a way that everybody understands it. So what I'm hearing from you, let me, let me tell you something just so Mm -hmm. get this. You think 12 years ago as a neurosurgeon that I knew any of this? No. So here's what, here's my point. Mm -hmm. If I can learn it, there's no reason everybody else can't learn it. Right. Um, and, and the point is it's not as hard as you think. In fact, I would tell you it's easier today. And here's the reason why. When you went through this rabbit hole 10 to 12 years ago, as I did, I had to go through Google and translate papers from Russian into uh, American, into English. Uh, it cost me, I can't, uh, $100,000. And I'm going to tell you now, you can buy books for less than 15, 60 bucks that has all the information. The problem is it's not going to get into your head by osmosis. Right. You need to physically read the books and go, huh, I've never actually thought about this. Mm-hmm. And when you keep reading these books, you're going to start to realize, huh, this is kind of interesting. Um, you know, I, the reason I, I stopped you here, because I, I posted something yesterday on my doctor Facebook page that I think would be really instructive for you. Because, you know, one of the things that I, I say all the time that absolutely pisses off a lot of the research biochemists and research scientists in the paleo community is they use nocturnal animals, put them in a lab under fluorescent light and study them, and that's where all the food studies come from. So I posted a link yesterday about how if you pre-treat a rat that they use in obesity research with red light, they get completely better. And I said, well, tell me how that's possible. Doesn't that pretty much inactivate pretty much everything that's published in the biochemical textbooks. And people don't look at it like that. They, when they read the, the link, and that's why I put the link up on my, on my doctor Facebook page, is to get people to realize, hey, look, this effect of light is even present in nocturnal mammals because what they don't realize, nocturnal mammals are, are our brethren. They're eutherian mammals. They came from the same place 65 million years ago. The difference is they're nocturnal and we're diurnal. But the crazy thing is red light even pre-treats their fluorescent blue toxicity to give a different result. So if you never control for that fluorescent light in any study, which they don't do, then are the conclusions of that study worth anything to a dude that lives in the San Francisco Bay Area who works under a fluorescent light? Right. You see what I'm saying? I see exactly what you're saying. So if we have the light situation figured out, and maybe you know it's not fully figured out, maybe we have just enough time to maybe hit 30 minutes of sun, you know, full back exposure, you know, maybe we're just in shorts, uh, and maybe we're we're getting the spring water straight from our mountain, the right kind of stuff, exactly what we need. Where would we go from there? Well, I mean, for you. Uh, and we'll keep it on you. The number one thing is the San Francisco Bay Area. What's your BUN creatinine ratio? Say you do this for six months, but your BUN creatinine ratio stays 20 to 1 or higher, mm-hmm. and nothing changes on your hormone panels, nothing changes on your Chem 7, and you don't see the needle move. You got to go. It's as simple as that. 
And, and that's the inconvenient part. And unfortunately, that story is becoming the most dominant story in American cities. And the reason that, that especially the food guys and the payload guys haven't put together yet is we've gone from 1G to 5G mm-hmm. in a matter of the last five years. And guess what? Every time the G goes up, the situation gets worse for mitochondria. Mm. And that's the reason why. I've made many predictions to the long-term members of my site. As soon as we go to 5G, you are going to see people come down with Hashimoto's thyroiditis as teenagers. And it's already happening. I just posted um, to, on, on one of my friend's pages about, you know, he made the comment, how come people aren't getting, you know, finger cancer from all the testing they're doing? I said, well, remember, cancer will take a little while, but they're all getting carpal tunnel now. I said, I've done more carpal tunnel surgeries this year and people below 25 years old than I did in my entire career for 20 years. Why is that? Because most people now in big cities have 4G. 5G hasn't hit yet, but it's beginning to hit. And and when people see the real jump is going to be 4 to 5G. When that happens, I'm just going to make a prediction to you. You're going to notice huge problems. And I mean huge problems in big cities. One of my members who I don't want to throw under the bus, we just came back from Mexico. He happens to be a laser physicist. He told all of my members on the beach applied Del Carmen this story. And I'll share. I'm going to take a couple parts out so that no one gets in trouble. Okay. He, he uh, engineered a building. He sells fiber optic cables that come into the building. And what people in New York want, and, and the reason why this is important for you to hear, whatever New York gets, everybody else gets. Okay. Okay. These people want one gig bandwidth coming into every apartment. So the only way to do that is to use fiber optic cable. Now, fiber optic cable by itself is okay. But what you connect it to is the big problem. So what does everybody in New York want? They want Wi-Fi everywhere they go. So their solution was to hire him to put the fiber optic cable. They were going to put cell phone towers on every floor of a 50-story building. Oh, my God. So that everybody could have access and he told them this was really a bad idea. So what did they do? And this is a building in Midtown Manhattan, okay? Two weeks before we came to Mexico, he gets a call a week after they installed these uh, LADA bands, which are RF microwave devices to carry 5G, um, that all the people in the building after four days in had horrible headaches they were calling in sick. They had 80% call-in rates. The tenants in the building didn't even come to work because of everybody started to feel really weird. So they called my member up and tried to blame it on the fiber optic cabling that came in. And he pointed out to them that he had sent them a note two weeks before, or I should say two months before, that you probably don't want to do this because you're going to find out what the problem. So you know what the biohack he gave them was to prove where the problem was? He said, turn off the Wi-Fi. They did it for four days. They made everybody come in to work. Nobody got sick. So five days after they installed these Wi-Fi, huge amount of people ended up sick. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Mm -hmm. It's going to scare the hell out of some people. Now this technology in a city like New York is now on every fire alarm. It's on every traffic light. Um, People have been hired to retrofit every light in Boston, Massachusetts with this technology. This is what's coming in 2017. So 
Let me ask you a question now, since you're the ancestral food guy. What would your prediction be, be in New York and Boston? Do you think everybody's going to start getting a little bit fatter? Do you think everybody's going to start craving more carbohydrates? Do you think that the types of food that they're going to be interested in is going to be different? You're damn straight. They're going to sell a lot more bagels. They're going to sell a lot more bananas. And we know that that already takes place. Why in the food industry? Anytime you go to a point of service, you know, where you have an iPad and the girl, the waitress comes over mm -hmm. and takes you. If you look underneath the table, there's an RF microwave device that sends that straight to the point of service system. You'll find that when you go to restaurants like that in the Bay Area and you have your Cornet device and go under there, it's redlined. You'll eat more food at that area and they know it. And the reason why they put it there is because they're trying to increase their profit. That was exactly my next question. I wanted to know, are the you know quote unquote powers at B, is there somebody here that obviously you, they're staying abreast? They know uh -huh. this, and uh -huh. this is just part of a you know some some larger scheme, whatever it is. It is. It's just like the tobacco litigation. If you just keep denying, what they do is they fund scientists to create information that's peer reviewed that goes against the mm. stuff that's really based on science. So remember, the longer time that you can continue selling into this, it's just like the insurance business. As you increase the flow, and the problem is they're banking on food guys like you. And people listening to this podcast, never spending the time going to read Andrew Marino's book, going somewhere to learn really how electromagnetic radiation works because it's nonlinear. What does nonlinear mean? Small little changes lead to massive change. Mm -hmm. And that's not how we think. We think that everything has got to be linear and symmetric. Yes. That's not how light works, my right. friend. That's why when you said to me right before I gave you this story – well, Jack, say we get the water from the mountain and we get go outside and get light. What did you forget immediately? You're still dehydrated. Yes. Right. And, and see, that's the point that I want to keep bringing you back to. I want you to understand the nonlinearity of light really starts with some of the stuff that makes people's heads hurt. I think most people know that light has a duality. It's both a wave and a particle. I think everybody's heard that. They may not understand anything past that, mm -hmm. but that is one aspect of the nonlinear aspects of light. It turns out that each frequency within the electromagnetic spectrum has very unique characteristics that can be used to do different things. Like, for example, RF radiation, a lot of people don't think it's a big deal, but it is because it changes the precession of electrons. But where's electrons in me and you? In our mitochondria. And do you know that electron spin is actually what determines free radical signals? All of a sudden you start going, hmm, maybe this RF stuff is a big deal. I didn't realize how an RF device from this could actually change the superoxide pulse at cytochrome 1. Mm. But that's my job. That's what I do for you guys. I, I actually point and click you to the right ear. See, I always tell people. A really good teacher doesn't tell you what to see. He just points you in a direction and says, look, and then read this book. And I would tell everybody listening to this podcast, if you think anything you've heard up until this point is bullshit, go read Andrew Marino's book, Going Somewhere, and you will know that you're just tipping the iceberg. So on that note, Andrew Marino's book, Going Somewhere – there are a few other books, too, that you would recommend us to read, correct? Oh, there's – I could give you quite a few. But, you know, I would tell people specifically for the topic 
that you and I are focusing on uh, on this podcast, that book is numero uno because one of the, the key pages, I think everybody who's a food guru would die if they knew that one of those power lines that they see outside their house mm -hmm. changes the magnetic field 90,000 kilometers above the surface of the earth. But if we can do that you, and you don't think it's going to affect you two blocks away, I got some bad news for you. Uh, you just don't understand physics. You don't understand the nonlinear aspects of it. And I think when you get that, that's when, especially a guy like you, is going to start to realize, hey, maybe San Francisco is probably not the brightest idea. You know, and it may be the reason I do have to eat low-carb, high-fat, because when I go off that template, things go really awry. Really awry. Right. And that's the reason – See, the reason why this is important, James, is because I want you to know, like if I would have dragged you to Mexico with me two weeks ago with my members, you would have sat down, you would have drank Malbec wine and had blueberries and, and glucose and carbohydrates with me, and it wouldn't have bothered you one bit. And you would have said, hmm. Now, I would have made you sit on the beach with me for five or six hours like I did with everybody else. Even though the Wi-Fi was in, in the hotel – People sat there and went, this is really interesting. And remember, most of the people, with the exception of two, they were all from the Northern Hemisphere. There was two there from the Southern Hemisphere. And even them being there from the Southern Hemisphere, they didn't have a huge problem. Why? Because they got the light, the water, and the big magnetic effect from the hole in the ground that's there from where the asteroid is uh, actually working to help them. And I told them, anytime you start to feel bad, let's go into the Gulf of Mexico together. Because, again, there's the Faraday cage effect, the thing that I told you earlier that can do it. And people consistently did this over two weeks. And their stories eventually will be coming out, either on my blog or in the forum. But some of the diseases that they had, your podcast listeners would not believe, and they went away in a couple of days. See, now, I can't do that in my hospital. I can't do that in my operating room. I don't think the primary care doctors can do it either. Um, it just leads to a different reality. And the point that I want to make is when you change the environment you're in, you can have radical changes in your health. When you change your diet, you don't get radical changes in a couple of days. It usually takes months to years, and then you usually hit plateaus. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because food is a half-truth. And the reason it's a half-truth a lot of it's good, but when you divorce it from light, when you divorce it from water, when you divorce it from magnetic effects, you don't have the whole part of the story. How do we go about creating a Faraday cage for our life? Like how – in these different situations, I know that's a big question there, but – You know, the Pacific Ocean for you, it's ideal temperature, 50 to 55 degrees year-round. Uh, you just got to find a good place. I can tell you there's a good place uh, right under the bridge in that – What's the name of that town that's down there? There's a uh, – uh, uh, Salcedo or – Sausalito, Sa I think. Yeah, Sausalito. There's a place you can go right under the bridge. I can tell you because I've done CT there myself. Mm -hmm. They have steps that go into the water. Go down there. It's got a park right there where you can ground. Um, I also think uh, the key thing, if I lived in a place like you, your place, I would follow my BUN creatinine, my vitamin D level. Critically, probably the two other labs I'd follow is an ASI and a salivary melatonin. Why? 
because when you're chronically dehydrated, the two labs, at least the hormone panels that are going to go south are the ASI and the salivary melatonin, because you can never raise your DC electric current high enough because you can't get the vitamin D levels up. Mm. So it's kind of all that that I just said may get a lot of your people, their head explode, but it's actually pretty simple. I'll, I'll try to explain it to you really quickly by using an analogy. AAA. Everybody has the idea about AAA. So if it's really cold out in Frisco, you go out to start your car and it doesn't start. You call AAA up. AAA comes on over and they try to jump your car. Can you jump a dead battery? The answer is no. If the battery's truly dead. So what does the AAA guy do? He pops the top and looks to see if there's water in the battery. He says, oh, look, there's no water. He puts water in it. So then he jumps it again. Okay. It still doesn't work. James, we have to the other part of the battery is electrodes, right, James? So you get the positive and negative. Maybe they're bad. So what does he do? He takes his wire brush out, cleans them off, puts it back on, jumps it, and it works. Okay, let's make the analogy to you now. The water is your BN and creatinine ratio. The electrodes, positive and negative, is your vitamin D level. Hmm. Okay. So when you see those two, the reason if you if your battery is totally dead, that means San Francisco has discharged your battery. That you have to leave. Why? Because working in the warehouse under fluorescent light with all those 10 million obedient idiots, therein lies the problem. And that's what I try to teach people. So if James does everything right, eats low carb, high fat, does everything you know that Rob Wolf tells him to and Chris Kresser <laughs> advocates, and you still trip over your feet after two or three years and your sleep sucks and you know, you, you're just not getting the results you want. Now you understand why you need to look at the environment because that's the big onion. And I always tell people, it's kind of like the Dave Ramsey guy. Everybody does all the little shit, right? But they always forget the big elephant in the room right. and the big elephant in the room is what moves the, the needle. And that's the reason why jumpstarting the battery. And that's why I use those labs as baselines for people for them to figure out really is the environment bad now what most people will do because it's easier to get to labs i tell people if you want to cut to the chase go buy an rf cornet meter a trimeter and a gauss meter and walk around your neighborhood within 15 minutes you'll have the answer if this is a place that's good for you yeah, or not I, I already know the answer without those <laughs> So, but you know, also there's also products out there, right? So there are things like the Magnetico sleep pad. There are things like my hippie flops or, you know, earth runners, for example, or they're just my bare feet touching the sand or the ground. Or I've even heard ways you could even ground your car for ways mm -hmm. to actually help mitigate those effects as well, too. And again, it's, you can't really ask any more uh, strategies because they're all very personalized in your opinion, right? So what you may have for me is... You can you can do you can do a lot of these things. These are like the the little things we just talked about earlier on the Dave Ramsey aspect. These are the little things to knock out. Like for example, in your area in the Bay Area, I have a good friend that lives out there who just bought a brand new Mercedes, and I told him to use the devices. I have a friend out there who's an electrical engineer who knows a lot about this, so he came over to his house and biohacked his car. You know, this guy just spent a ridiculous amount of money on this car and found out that he was sitting right on a microwave oven. He was so pissed off. He's like, Jack, I'm going to have to get rid of this car because that's – and I, I try to tell him not to buy the car to begin with because I knew what he was going to face because I've already biohacked that car. Okay. So I told him there is an out. And he goes, tell me what the out is. I said, take the damn fuse out of the uh, starter 
and just go the old way with the key. And he goes, that will work? I said, yeah. I said, do it. So the EMF engineer took the, the fuse box out and he started it up. I said, now check it. And it was fine. I said, see, there's ways around it. And, he, and then he said to me, he goes, yeah, but I lost that benefit of doing it. I said, okay, well, was the benefit great or would you rather get colon cancer or, or anal cancer in your ass from sitting on a microwave oven? Mm-hmm. And he thought about it and he's like, you know, that's a good point. I said, this, these are the things, the, the reason why, James, this stuff is so incredibly important because these frequencies that we're talking about of light, they're not visible light. We can't see it. We can't smell it. We can't taste it. We can't hear it. But you know what feels it? We can't even feel it either, technically. But you know what does feel it? Our mitochondria. mitochondria. And that is the key. That's what I want every single food ancestral health person to know, that what I teach people is how to be a mitochondria, how to know what to look for even when you don't sense it. And the benefit of labs, the benefit of some of the things that your paleo gurus do, there is a benefit there when you know what you're looking for. But when you don't know what you're looking for and you're focusing on food, you make big errors, really big errors. And that's the way certain people can get hurt. And by no means am I trying to say that those people are willfully hurting people. I don't believe that. But what I want them to know is that the information and data is available to prove that what I'm telling you here today is 100% not speculation, not hyperbole, it's reality. Mm -hmm. And it's what we need to focus in on. When I get people focusing on this, I have no problem talking about blueberry pie and paleo-approved bacon and, and things like that at all. But to me, this is the big issue. I don't like talking about the little issues because, remember, my job as a physician is to do no harm. And when I know what the real big ticket is, I have a duty to tell people that. I'm, I'm perfectly conversant in talking in the paleo world because for me, that's pretty easy. Right. My stuff is a little bit more daunting, but the problem is, is when, you know, a 25-year-old girl is seeing an infertility expert for the fourth time, and she's got Hashimoto's, IBD, and, you know, adrenal fatigue, and she's been to every paleo-approved doctor on some dude's website, and she's still having trouble, guess what? That's when they wind up with me, and that's when I tell them, what this is what I want you to look at. We don't talk about um, the things that other people talk about. Not that they're not important, but they're not going to solve the problem. And that's the key. So for your own patients, and I, I know this is actually a question that came up, what, what are some of the things in your own practice that you do help people with? All right. I'll give you, I'll give you two, um, four examples, okay? We'll pick two common things out. As a spine surgeon, because I'm a neurosurgeon, I still do brain surgery, but I do a lot of spine surgery. One of the most common things that I see is osteoporosis, and I'm starting to see osteoporosis. Like When I first came out of residency, I never saw it in people your age. Now, I cannot find a kid your age that doesn't have it. So what do I do? I teach them how to do it. So the first thing I'll do is, instead of going straight uh, to their physical exam, I'll come in the room and get a little bit of history. And I always ask about mom and grandma, because why? I'm already focusing on the mitochondria. How did I know that? Before I walk in the room, I already look at their MRI. From their MRI, the MRI tells me, do they have too many protons or too many electrons? Mm. That's, that's the key. 
because remember, protons have a positive charge. Positive charge, in my world, we call that inflammation or chaos. Negative charge actually is health, it's wellness. It's the DC electric current that I mentioned to you earlier because mm -hmm. that's a high regeneration. So I know this going in already. And the other thing that I always see either in the neck or thoracic or lumbar spine is their discs, and the discs usually look white on an MRI. Well, someone who's dehydrated, even if I have no labs, which a lot of times I don't, if they're black, I know they're dehydrated. And if the discs are black further from the brain, that means it's a proxy for how bad their vitamin D level is. Mm. So how do you prove the patient before I even walk in? I grab their tibia, pull their leg up, and I take my thumb and push my thumb against the tibia and ask them, does it hurt? And if they jump off the table, I tell them, that test I just did on you is an 80-year-old test. That's called a tibial compression test. And I'm supposed to push this reflex hammer against your bone. So if I use my thumb, you're not going to break 30 nanograms per deciliter on a blood test. So immediately, I sent them down to have the blood test. Why? I tell them the story I just told you that I knew what their problem was before they walked in. And then I ask them for four to six weeks. I may, depending on how bad the number is, because I usually get the answer back that day when because we have our own lab here. Okay. I tell them what I want them to do. I will usually put those patients on a whopping dose that makes their primary care doctor's head explode. But then I specifically tell them I want no shoes on. And if they drink coffee, I said, I want you every morning to get outside, look in the direction of the sun. And then for some part of that day, 15 to 20 or 30 minutes, and here's the advantage of where I live at the 28th latitude, we still make vitamin D 24-7. So I tell them between 11 and 1, I want them to do their 15 or 30 minutes that time of the day. And do that for four to six weeks. Invariably, 80% of them come back like, Doc, my pain's gone. That's crazy. <clears throat> so that, that's the most common one. Now let me give you the one that I think your listeners are going to be really interested in. Okay. So say I have a motivated young female who comes in and she's got osteoporosis. She's infertile. She's got horrible back and neck pain. She's been to, let's say, three or four docs around. And nobody's been able to help her. She's in chronic pain management. She's addicted to opioids. This probably sounds like a pretty common. That sounds fairly typical. Yeah, I've, I've heard that scenario plenty of times. And, and this is a person that likes to smoke weed because the weed actually helps them, you know, just to throw more fuel on the fire. Right. So we'll look at the MRI, get the clue that the patient likely has hypothyroidism, secondary to Hashi's, has never had, you know, TPO antibodies or anything like that at all. So I go through the whole thing and tell them that basically everything you heard about the last patient is accurate for this one, but with one difference. I said, if I was to tell you that you could take some of your money that you spend on the weed, but you go buy, say, a little home laser device that you put right over your thyroid gland that uses, say, red type of light, and you give yourself 10 or 15 second pulses at home, to re-stimulate your thyroid, to raise your free T3 and free T4 while eating seafood, while drinking spring water, while going outside every day, 15 to 30 minutes, I'll, I'll order your labs in four to six weeks and we'll see if your TPO antibodies drop. And guess what happens? They go down. Mm -hmm. So, you know, your famous paleo guys, especially one of them who's really famous, has one of these problems. You know, hmm. He's got celiac disease. What if I was to tell you that someone with celiac disease 
we could do something like this and I can turn them back into being able to eat bread by using red light therapy right on their thyroid gland. Wow. That's, How's that? that? That's amazing. Well, guess what? That's the power of light. And the problem is, I always tell people this, over-supplemented or over-medicated with food comes from being under-educated about light. Mm -hmm. And guess what? That that issue with light, that's not what I would call the routine in my office. But when someone comes in who's young, who, who, who is train wreckers, I just gave you somebody who's pretty common in my practice, but this is this may be not as common you know, in certain parts of the country where people are going to listen to your podcast. If somebody was to tell you that you can actually improve thyroid function by utilizing red light, I don't even think people know that photobiomodulation or LLLT in the paleo world actually works. You know, you'll have people go to see some of these guys that are in Berkeley, order labs for 18 months, James, and spend, spend literally three times on labs what the, the laser device you can buy online would cost. Which laser device are you speaking of, by the way? I'm not going to tell you that. Okay. That, All right. Um, that, remember, this is going out on the internet. Then it becomes practicing medicine without a license. And, mm. Right, I understand. This, is, this is stuff that people can search and find online. Mm -hmm. They can actually go on my forum and see people who are actively doing this. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you know about this device that we came up came up with called the Qualit that yes. actually uses light to improve athletic performance. See, there's so many different aspects of both light, water, and magnetism that we can use to biohack. Um, I don't particularly like the term biohacking. I like the term mitohacking because I functionally teach people how to be mitochondriacs. And when you understand light, water, and magnetism, those are the three axes that mitochondria respond to. And we can fix most mitochondrial diseases to some extent when we employ those things. And I don't think you need to be a doctor to do it. I mean, let's face it. The Sphinx is probably my poster child analogy for my patients in my office. Because you ask me, what do, what do I teach my patients? Mm -hmm. I teach my patients to be the Sphinx. Look to the east every morning and try to get all their four extremities grounded. The only thing missing from the Sphinx is the water. Mm -hmm. And I explain to them, we're fortunate where I live. We have great spring water everywhere. And we don't have a major issue with it. In fact, our water supply down here is not fluoridated naturally. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Yeah. Well, it isn't. But several several uh, you know municipalities around us are. But if the patient happens to live there and say they don't have any money, I tell them, I'll just drink the tap water because you'll be okay. Down here, most people, since they're old farming communities, they have wells. So yeah. the wells are fine. And if you've ever seen the rain in the Gulf South, dude, when it rains here, it rains like crazy. Yeah. I mean, obviously I live in the temperate climate of California and it does not rain very much at all. And we were right. just fortunate enough to get a heavy rain just last week due to a storm. So I'm very fortunate in that matter. And I'm fortunate that, you know, I do live in the location that I do, uh, as far as the water, uh, as far as the EMF, I'm in the tech capital of the world. So that, that right, right there tells you all that you need to know my location and EMFs. But Okay, and maybe we could just go over some rapid-fire questions just kind of that I noticed that a couple people from the uh, Facebook group, Lightwater and Magnetism, actually had for you. Okay. And um, 
Shannon Lister from the Quantum Health Light Water Mag- Magnetism Facebook group asks, how does heat affect respiratory proteins and how does it affect electrons traveling across cytochromes? Basically, uh, the heating and cooling, etc. Yeah. That, that one's actually fairly simple. Uh, the question I think she's looking for is the mechanism. Most people know that eutherium mammals are warm-blooded. So that means that we release protons, we release infrared heat, meaning mm-hmm. light from our mitochondria. That's why we're warm. So let's take the corollary of that. Alligators, which are literally probably 15 minutes from where I am right now, they are outside getting warm by the sun. Yes. So the difference between reptiles and us is they need the sun to warm them in order to perform the physiologic functions. We have that built into us because we usurp the mitochondria and we use it a certain way. Mm. So when heat is released, what does heat do to water? And this is important. Most people know, this is a simple analogy, uh, but I'll, I'll try to make it as easy as I can. If you took a beer and you put it in your fridge or in the freezer right now and left it there for 24 hours, what would happen? It explode. Okay, so it expands. Now, most things that get heated expand. Mm-hmm. Water to be one of the few different molecules that actually contract. So what is around the outside of the inner mitochondrial membrane? And for those of you who don't know, the inner mitochondrial membrane is where cytochrome 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 are. Those are the respiratory proteins. So there's a menos layer around it. What other people don't realize is this effect of warm water, or I should say heat shrinking water, also ties to the scale it happens. How big is a mitochondria? It's really tiny. What else is special about mitochondria? They're flat. Most people don't know that. They mm-hmm. think they're circular in three dimensions. They're not. That. They're flat. So the scale, the size, when you heat water, makes its volume shrink. And as the volume shrinks, it brings the respiratory proteins closer together. Mm. Respiratory proteins come closer together. Electron tunneling becomes more efficient. Why? What does physics teach us? What's in Nick Lane's book, The Vital Question? Every one angstrom increase between the respiratory proteins reduces electron tunneling by a factor of 10. Oh, wow. Think about what I said before. Light has nonlinear effects, like small little changes lead to massive. Here's an example, a beautiful example. And it's one of the major issues uh, with mitochondrial function that people need to know. So, the more stretched out the respiratory proteins are, that means the higher the heteroplasmy rate becomes over decades. That's how people who are 25 years old come into me with carotid disease and heart disease. Wow. Mitochondria in those areas are shut. And how do those cytochromes actually spread out rather than condense? Like, is there. Oh, remember, they're on a, a bilipid membrane. Mm-hmm. And what happens, what's inside is there's another space there. Remember, Mitochondria, and I don't want to, I don't want to go through a treatise about mitochondria, but they have an inner and outer membrane. Mm-hmm. But what's inside the inner membrane is the mitochondrial matrix. What is the mitochondrial matrix? It's filled with protons. Okay, because those protons get kicked out the fifth cytochrome, which is the ATPase. Mm-hmm. And every three and a half protons that come out, you make an ATP. In other words, you make a, a total spin of the spinning head. Why is that important? Well, the current. If you know anything about physics, the right hand effect. The current runs in the direction of my thumb, as you can see here. The magnetic field comes this way. The magnetic field is also increased by the spinning head of ATPase. That's the reason why when we use magnetotrons, we can find 
the brain and the heart have massive magnetic fields. Why? Because that's where humans bury most of their mitochondria. Now, we have it everywhere. There's only one cell in the body that doesn't have a mitochondria, and it turns out that's a red blood cell, and that's by design. That gets into a whole separate podcast. Right. I want to talk about chloroplast and hemoglobin and animal photosynthesis. That's where that goes. But the point made is that the closer the cytochromes are together, you have more electron tunneling, but also proton tunneling occurs from inside to outside, and that determines how much heat is liberated. So remember, the more heat that's liberated, the more energy efficient you become, mm. and that affects the tensegrity system in your body, meaning you become, say, more like Adonis and less like, uh, you know, or I say more like probably Ben Greenfield instead of like me. <laughs> and, and the reason I am the way I am is because of my job. Uh, I know that. And see, the thing is, um, my wife's been trying to get me to quit for five years. But the thing is, when you when you can sustain like the weight loss that I've had for 12 years in medicine, most people will tell you it's impossible to keep 150, 160 pounds off for more than a decade. Well, I've kept, I'd say, 80 percent of my weight off and I don't even try. And I still do it working in this nuclear furnace across right. the street. So the point that I like to make to people is if you mitigate and you do well, kind of what Shannon's question was, if you shrink your stuff enough, dude, you can do a lot. And, and that gives you hope too, James, because yes. you're like, hey, man, if, if he can do it in the operating room, why can't I do it in San Francisco? Mm -hmm. That's okay. Uh, Shannon, I know you're going to love that one. Um, <laughs> moving on, Tristan Haggard of the Primal Edge Health Podcast. He actually asked just a few, but it was – uh, specifically, how do you define quantum and how exactly does that relate to today's paradigm in health? Uh, I, it's very simple. Quantum is anything tied to light, anything tied to the nonlinear aspects of light, anything that's tied to the probabilities that are tied to the photoelectric effect. Okay. There's nothing on this planet that isn't quantum. Tristan happens to be a guy that really doesn't, I, I truly believe, believe that. He's a great guy. And one of the, the greatest things that he's done, you know, is that he moved his family from California to Ecuador. Yeah. And if he doesn't do anything else. That one move alone, he gets two thumbs up from me. Nice. <laughs> right on, Tristan. And you know what? He actually had just one more to follow up with that, which was what biohacks, specifically the ones that originated a few years back, that seemed to result in weight gain. What were those and how did you reverse them? Well, the, the, the one I'll, I'll share with you, the one that I had the hardest trouble with, I thought I'd fix it in a year, but it took almost 18 months. Uh, I actually gave myself sleep apnea and I did every possible hack in the world to try to reverse it. And then finally, uh, I had to uh, go to one of my old mentors and get use of a transcranial magnet to actually help reverse the process utilizing my fourth ventricle and that actually made the situation better the other thing that i would say is in the process of doing the hacks that i did in 15 and this is a really interesting point that he brings up i started to do a lot of testing for the quantlet and for other devices that me and ruben are developing okay. and what i found is that when i pushed my thermodynamic ledge about 20 30 pounds higher than where I was at my maximum weight loss, 
I was able to see the effects much greater in my hacks. Mm. So what did I do? I wound up keeping it on because it actually made me a better tester. In other words, I could use me as an N equals one because I wouldn't do this stuff on you. I wouldn't do it on Tristan uh, because what I'm trying to do, uh, and I've really not talked about this except to Ruben, uh, we're working on a lot of other devices. And once we made the quality and we saw the effects that it has for performance, then it started to give me other ideas of, hey, what if I build this or we build this and we do this? And we're thinking about different, I don't want to say diseases, but different human problems now. And it turns out that when you're at that thermodynamic ledge, like say when you go up 10 or 15 pounds, you see a maximum change. That's how you can actually use the mitohack to see if it works or not. Mm -hmm. um, and I think when I was at my lowest weight loss, I don't think I was getting those effects. So right now, I would tell you, I'm probably around 230, 235, but that was from 360 when I started. The lowest that I got to is about 197, 200. So I would tell you, I'd say for the last probably four years, I've been pretty much weight stable right around 230, 235. Uh, and the reason is because we're, we're now several other projects in. We haven't stopped it's kind of like once we started, the balls really yeah, got rolling. It was the snowball effect for sure. It, and that's that. That's the real reason that uh, I haven't done it. I, I would say though, as a, the the final follow up to his question, the way for me to get back to the full effect is actually to do what Tristan did. Is actually to quit neurosurgery, get out of the environment that I'm in, mm -hmm. and completely jump in all 100%. And the problem is right now, uh, my wife wants me to do that. Uh, I don't know if I'm willing to get it or do it yet because I'm learning so much. I can tell you that I learned more from my biohacks and my mitohacks in the last 18 months than I did the first 10 years I started this. Wow. Yeah, it's it's been like, it's almost, I guess it's almost been like my heroin addiction <laughs> because when you see yeah, I'm fascinated and I'm always curious. And when I learn new things, I'm constantly writing these things down. And I want to push the envelope. I want to examine it, see if there's something I can do to learn a little bit more about our physiology. Um, because I think we're just scratching the surface. When I tell you I think that modern medicine is in the first inning of a huge revolution, I really believe that. And are, would you be getting more benefit if you did that, or are you getting more benefit by helping your patients and, and helping them? Yeah, I'm glad you asked this question because this gets to the crux of the issue. And I'm gonna I'm gonna probably give you the answer in question form to you because I want you to answer because I know you don't have Tristan's mindset because he asked the question and I'm answering it. But let me ask you a question: We're humans, right? We bury our mitochondria and our brain in our head. <clears throat> most people in the paleo world, the ancestral world, look at people's facades and they judge people based on that. So are we gorillas or are we human primates? So let's flip the story around. Does it make more sense to focus in on your facade or how smart you are? Like, do, should I get on these podcasts and start saying, well, you know, Tristan or any of these other guys with podcasts are dumbasses because they don't know what I know. Mm -hmm. In other words, my mitochondria is right here. 
but you're not judging me for this. You're judging me for this. So should I say to you, well, look, you, you're a gorilla. You got a great looking body, but you're dumb as a fucking ox. Does that make any sense? No. You tell me, James. Yeah. Okay. I get, I get it. Yeah. See what I'm saying? And, mm -hmm. and, and, you know what it is? It's one of the paradigm um, conundrums. And I guess what I'm trying to say to you in terms of trying to answer his question accurately is I realize when I do this, my mitochondria, my brain work really good. And when you start to learn these things and you push the envelope further, it's hard to get away from that. I would honestly tell you that what I've learned in the last 18 months, I think 12, 13 years ago when I was my old self at 40 years old, I would have never been curious enough to ask the questions because the mitochondria here were no good. Well, I was just going to follow that up with, well, what is stopping you? What's stopping you from making that giant leap? Well, more than likely, probably what I'm doing. You know, I, I'm juggle a lot. Like my member said to me in Mexico, like, how do you write the blog? How do you do what you're doing? How do you do neurosurgery full time? And how do you do what we're doing now? And when they asked me, I thought about it. I said, well, it's actually about efficiency. And here's the crazy thing. I just came through a road of time series. And what I'm telling people is when your mitochondria and your brain are really good, time becomes relative. In other words, to me, this – this seems normal. It doesn't seem abnormal. And I, I, I guess when you're doing things that you're passionate about, it doesn't seem like work. Mm. You know what I mean? Of course. Um, and I guess that's my answer. I don't know if it's uh, going to satisfy the critics or the skeptics, but that's honestly, you know, just thinking about it, you know, off the top of my head with you and I talking, that's how I look at it. So it's your passion that's holding you back from actually going full bore into just maybe moving into a new location and taking this to the next level? Well, my passion for learning. Mm. It's, it's, you know, I've not, I feel like, I feel like I'm getting an education. I get, I'm getting a bigger education from nature than I ever did in medical school. And, you know, it's kind of hard, you know, when I signed up for this gig, you know, 25, 30 years ago to be a doctor, you know, every doctor is altruistic in the beginning. And then you go through training and residency and you, realize that it's a bunch of horseshit right. yeah. when everybody comes to that that moment at some point in their life but when i came to it um now that you really see that you can use nature to learn the things that we really thought we were gonna learn in medical school it's kind of like huge i love it i absolutely love learning you know it happened when i was in mexico i told all my members last two weeks that we were all there together Every day I get up, I want to learn three new different things. It turns out in Mexico, I learn more than three things every day. And I don't believe that we could have learned those things together if we didn't have that collective experience together for us to talk back and forth. And um, I, I, I really think that's one of the downsides of podcasts, of social media, of Twitter, that you don't get this interaction. Like you and I right now, you're getting a flavor for me for the first time, but we still haven't met. You haven't sampled my biofotons. You haven't sampled you know, what I'm talking to you with my hands, mm -hmm. you know, in real time. And the people that have met me in real life will tell you that experience is different than when you do it over the internet. And I, you really ask me, dude, I love dealing with patients. I okay. absolutely love. Yeah. I mean, they are kind of like, they teach me. 
Yeah. Okay. And that's that's exactly what I wanted to know. Okay. Well, uh, just a couple more questions here. One from Jason Prawl. He asks, there are various ancient traditions that use many different breathing techniques to induce health. And he, he kind of just wants to know what are your favorite breathing techniques for benefiting health? And what, what exactly do you think that they're doing inside of the body? Well, breathing is all about the modulation of oxygen. And uh, oxygen, again, is this, this pretty important concept. Uh, if, if, I don't think, I'm going to be honest with you, I think the premise of the question is kind of so broad spectrum that it can't give you any specificity. I think every person has a different uh, breathing technique that will help them. And let me explain to you why I say that. I'm going to use something from my world. In the ICU that's right over here, we have people that have ARDS. That's acute respiratory distress syndrome. So we put a tube down them. They're on a mechanical ventilator, and we have to put their FiO2, that's the amount of oxygen, sometimes to 70 80 90%. If I was to do that to you or Jason right now, I would kill both of you. Yeah. Multi-organ system failure. Why? Because when you deliver that much oxygen uh, to you, you make huge free radicals, and it destroys different parts of your body. So why doesn't it happen in these people? Well, the inner alveolar space in the lung, these are the two – this is the inside and outside membrane. Between them is the extracellular fluid. Well, in ARDS patients, it's like this. So you have to have huge amounts of O2 on this side to diffuse across that swollen lung parenchyma to get the oxygen to mitochondria. Mm -hmm. So let's take the medicine side out. Let's say it's me and you, mm -hmm. me and Prawl, and we're comparing the two. His VO2 max, my VO2 max are radically different. In fact, his own VO2 max would be different in California than if we brought him to Denver, Colorado, wouldn't it? Yeah. So guess what? The oxygen or breathing requirements in different places are different. That's the reason why Sherpas can do what they do on the top of the Himalayan mountains and why you in San Francisco couldn't. So would I apply the same breathing techniques to two different people? The answer is no. So the context that mm. I would use – to answer this question is once I knew what the patient is, then I would talk about breathing techniques with them. So I'll give you a for example to answer the question. Okay. I had somebody who say was uh, a BMI of 40 and wanted to lose weight. Those are people that I would uh, tell to use the Wim Hof method of breathing, which is TUMO. And that's an ancient technique because that's what Wim is really teaching people. Mm -hmm. I don't think he goes into the detail to explain to people truly what they're doing. But remember, since oxygen is the terminal electron acceptor, people who are obese have slow current on their intermitochondrial membrane. Mm -hmm. So do they need as much oxygen as, say, somebody like Prawl or somebody like Tristan? The answer is no. In fact, if you deliver too much oxygen, then you're actually hurting them. And these are the kind of things that – the gurus don't actually sit down and think about. Mm -hmm. and, and what I try to explain to people when it comes to breathing, I want them to think about the intermitochondrial membrane as a wire, and I want you to think about oxygen as that terminal electron acceptor. I mean, it accepts those electrons going through it. So if your current's slow, do you need a ton of oxygen? The answer is no. If you put too much oxygen there, you're trying to draw current through. Higher oxygen tension for someone who's obese, the reason why breathing techniques can work is because it delivers, say, 20 to 25%. That will draw the current further. But what's the key? The key is shrinking the respiratory proteins because of what we talked about mm -hmm. earlier. So elevating your oxygen to a certain amount helps.
But if that respiratory protein, the more this is spread out, the worse oxygen can be for you. And that's the little nuance okay. that you get. And see, like in uh, Prawl's world, who he deals with, he doesn't deal with the same patients I deal with. So he has a warped reality. And unfortunately, uh, I don't think he, uh, he realizes that. And, you know, when he talks to people, there's no one fit size for anybody. And that's the reason why context really matters. Okay. All right. Uh, Dude Spellings. He asks, I'd like recommend recommendations for practical home water solutions. Seems like filters don't take out all the fluoride, also take out good stuff like minerals, and delivered spring water is usually in plastic bottles, which raises BPA, BPS concerns. Do you, well, I, mean, I, I mean, that's just a general recommendation, I guess. Yeah, this, this guy lives in Austin, and I would tell you, see that mountain water right there? Mm -hmm. They deliver it, and it comes in glass bottles. They have five-gallon jugs. They're here. They're in Austin. It's not cheap, but it's it's pretty good. You know, one of your compatriots, you know, is a good friend of mine who has a podcast, Luke Story. Mm -hmm. This goes up to the mountains in freaking L.A. Yeah. and collects his own water yep. and brings it down. One good thing about Austin is that there's lots of different places you can get spring water right out the ground. So I'd say findaspring.com. If you're looking for a home solution and you have money you want to spend, I'd say call Ben Greenfield's dad. There we and go. Have to come and put one of those systems in your house. I don't tell people to do that that often because A, it's expensive. B, I'm not convinced it's worth the expense considering that you have other options. Right. If you happen to live, say, in Southern California where the water situation is critical, that's meant maybe then when you want to fix the problem. But I think California's solution is now to build desalination plants, which means you're all going to have reverse osmosis water. So that's not bad. The thing is you can add your minerals yeah. to the reverse osmosis water and do things like that. But what I would tell people to do when you get uh, RO water, because technically I don't want to say it's still because that's not true, but it's, it's highly processed water. One of the things you can do is get a copper pot, put it outside on the grass in the sun, or if you're an indoor guy like you, get a big copper pot like I have and put it on your Magnetico. So when you go to work in the, the warehouse – Leave your water on the Magnetico and see the red light behind you. Mm -hmm. Put the light on it, go, and then take your water and pour it into your bottles and drink that. Th those would be simple things you can do. Um, and to be honest with you, water for me was a bigger deal when I was in Nashville. Now that I'm down here, it's simple. I just have the Green Mountain Valley guys come to my house and that's it. Yeah, and you know what? I took a recommendation from Dr. McCullough, actually hearing him on the Ben Greenfield podcast by putting some magnets under my spring water inside of my refrigerator. There you go. Let's see here. Uh, and this was interesting to me. Uh, a gentleman named Hairless Samson. He asked, why is <laughs> – yeah, hilarious. Uh, why is grounding through a plug or anything comparable apparently a double-edged sword? And how can someone be sure not to do himself any harm? I thought this was super interesting, by the way. Well, here's the thing. You asked for quick hitters. Boy, you didn't ask a question that's a quick hitter. But it goes to the things that we talked about earlier. Here's my concern. Anything that's grounded to the electric power grid is at risk for non-native EMFs. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to explain to you simply, 4G and 5G have the ability to jump from the air around us onto the electric power grid and go directly to us. Oh, what? Yeah, exactly. Now, now, now I'm going to share with you a story that's going to blow your mind. 
because you opened this can of worms, so I'm going to force you to listen to <laughs> Let, it. I'm going to eat it. Let's do it. All right. I think I have not told anybody this yet publicly. This is one of the things that I learned in Mexico. Here, I thought I was the detailed guy. One of my members brought home a big take-home point, and it goes directly to this story. So he lives in one of the boroughs in New York, and he vetted this house, hired an EMF engineer, went around. The house tested better than anything he did. He buys the house. He's got two young kids, and he happens to be a physicist, so he's not a dumbass. So he teaches his kids how to use the RF meter, the trimeter, and the Gauss meter. So one day, a year after he bought the house, they're playing with it, and all of a sudden he notices that his four-year-old has the Gauss meter in the middle of the living room, and it's red-lined. And he's like, wait a minute. Yeah. Just paid good money for somebody to come out and check this a year ago. So he gets interested, takes all the meters, and slowly f- tracks the magnetic field up into the ceiling tiles. And what he notices, there's no electric field present. Now, that should be a clue something radically is going wrong. Why? Because what does Maxwell's law say? Anytime you have a magnetic field, you have to have an associated electric field at 90 degrees. He only found a magnetic field. So he tracks the magnetic field up to two ceiling tiles, pulls the ceiling tiles down, and the Gauss meter is going nuts on his water and power, uh, water and gas line, not the electric. So what does he do? He happens to have a construction company as a part of his business. So he puts them snake out into the street through the sewer pipes. You know what he found? What? That a tree root grew in to the Con Edison power line. And the reason he didn't see the electric power grid is because the electric current was dissipated by the grounding effect of the earth. But the magnetic field jumped onto the water pipe and the gas pipe and made a portion of his living room toxic to live in. Gets better. So he starts talking to his neighbors. Six out of his eight neighbors in the last year was diagnosed with cancer. Oh, my God. So here's the take home. Just when you thought your environment was really good, nature can come and change the fields. So in his house now, he actually has blue painter's tape in the middle of the living room until he moves and tells the kids not to go in there because it's like scalding hot water. Okay. Now he tells us all this and I'm sitting there and the solution to this problem is crazy. The solution is Con Edison has to come and tear the whole street up. Cause guess what? That whole street now has a non-native EMF. Well, I shouldn't say that non-native magnetic fields going in on their gas and, and water lines. Oh, wow. So, the reason I bring this up to you is when we go to 5G, remember I told you that all the, the traffic lights and, and mm. the stations are going to have antennas on it. It's so powerful. The power density is so powerful. It will jump from there straight onto the power lines in your house. So if you're using grounding sheets or anything else, you know what you're doing? You're taking the power density of that cell phone tower and putting it on the sheets that you sleep oh on. Oh, my God. You got it? Oh, I got it. And that's the reason why I tell everybody to stay as far away from grounding anything on the power grid. What your smarter move is, is to take a copper wire, put it directly in the ground, and then use that. In fact, most of my members, when they use like their CT tanks, they get these big things from copper supply, I mean, tractor supply that are metal, and they just run the copper 
into the water. Technically, you don't have to do that. If it's made out of zinc, you're grounded straight to the ground, you're fine. But those are things that you would never think about. When I heard this story about the tree, now I'm always constantly looking at trees anywhere near transforming my house because I, I'm, I've been going out and looking to see, because this is something that will change as the tree gets older. And if you happen to live in a city like New York that has these huge maple trees on every street, I mean, God knows, you know, how often this happens. I'm sure this is happening in municipalities everywhere. And you know how before when you asked me the question about, you know, CPT codes linked to zip code, mm -hmm. this would be one of the ways that, you know, you would start to think about this. But you're, you would never know this. I would have never thought that. Ever. No, neither would I. And I'm pretty dialed in. Yeah. And when, when I heard this, I was like, holy smokes, you know, and it, it, it's a microcosm of why you need to be awfully careful with power grids in your house. That's part of the reason why I've told all my members, I want the power grid shut off from the electric box where you sleep. You bare minimum, everybody needs to do that. Uh, but if you're really wise, you'd be smart to turn it off. And, you know, this is good. This is this. If you want a good ancestral thing that I'd like to see you push on your podcast, mm -hmm. since you live in a city, try to get people aware of putting kill switches in. So when they go to work, they can turn shit off in their house because you know what? Say if you happen to be the guy that's in the house, you're actually helping each other out. You know, it's like, it's almost like baking your neighbor a cake and being nice. <laughs> Technically you really don't need the power grid on at your house. Uh, when you're not there because all the stuff in the fridge will still be good as long as you don't open the door. Um, but we know we don't think about stuff like that and we need to, to me that that's a, a simple thing we could all do to help each other. That was a great question. Again, that came from, I see her hairless Samson. He's the one that actually asked that and, uh, art Westfall. This, this was a really interesting one that I, I particularly liked. Art Westfall asks, since, and this might be a loaded question, since mitochondria originated as bacteria, do antibiotics weaken the mitochondria within a cell without necessarily harming the cell itself? Absolutely. Period. And I'm just going to leave it at that because the answer is huge. Yeah. And antibiotics usually affect what we call lateral gene transfers. Uh, bacteria all use lateral gene transfers to transfer their, their genome. So do mitochondria. So what are those change programs called in mitochondria? Because remember, back, back, mitochondria are basically bacteria that have had their genomes deleted down to 37 genes. 13 of the 37 genes are for the respiratory proteins. They're the most mission critical ones. So anytime you take an antibiotic, technically you're affecting the lateral gene transfer. That program is called mitophagy or autophagy. I think that's a problem. Uh, okay. Hey, there you go, Art. <laughs> There's your answer. Oh, and he followed it up with, and as we enhance the electron support system within our mitochondria through the application of quantum biology, is it still the standard or norm to have a body temperature of 98.6 or whatever the normal body temperature should be? We don't know because guess what? No one checked people, you know, 100,000 years ago. I have a sense that body temperature and thermoregulation actually would be a way, an indirect way, a nonlinear way to uh, tell how good or bad your heteroplasm rate is. Uh, is that something that me and Ruben have actually already talked about and thought about trying to build a device? Yeah, we did. But the problem is to really make it accurate, I'd have to stick a catheter inside your brain. And I don't think each one of you are going to allow me to do that. Oh, damn. <laughs> you, could, you could put it in the spinal fluid 
in the in the down in the spine, but even that's not fun. But that's safer than sticking it through your head. So I would tell you, yeah, I do believe that there is a change, but I think the number change would have to be very accurately measured to tell anything about light. Because remember, light and temperature link through quantum mechanisms. It's, it's that whole photoelectric constant that um, that Einstein talked about. I mean, wavelengths can be changed to heat. Heat can be changed to electricity. They're all interchangeable, utilizing different uh, physical laws. But to understand how infrared heat links directly to temperature, because infrared light has no mass and temperature changes things with mass, it would be you need to have very accurate measures of the temperature change in order to make that determination. Okay. All right. And in closing, you know what? I know there's a list, a huge list, and you can probably find that on jackcruz.com of books. But uh, what what would be your must-read absolute books yeah, that you would recommend? I would say for the I'd say for the beginning one, like a really good beginner's book for light would be John Ott's book, and his name is spelled O T T. It's called Health and Light. It's only about 130 pages. It's 40, 50 years old. I think when you read that, that will teach you just how much you don't know about light. Mm. Okay? And it's very simple. The uh, second book I would tell you to get, uh, and this one's specifically for non-native EMF, this is high level. It's not easy, but you'll be fascinated by it, is Going Somewhere by Andrew Marino. He's a physicist uh, and a lawyer who fights power companies and cell companies. Um he was the main physicist in Dr. Robert O. Becker's lab for almost 35 years. Okay. And all of Becker's books would also be on my list. That's The Electric Body, Light and Electromagnetism, and also Cross Currents. And I think uh, for water, probably the big book would be Pollock's book. Mm -hmm. And I would caution people, you're going to love the book because it's simple to understand. But some of the little details, the nuances, like one of the things that you asked me about, shrinkage of water with heating, that's not really well covered in Pollock's book because Pollock tries to make the book understandable for a third to sixth grade reading level. And if you want to understand the more – the details about like quantum aspects of water, you'd have to read like Martin Chaplin's work, uh, another guy from Texas Tech – Meaning you really want to push the envelope, you go to Ling, but if you read Ling's work, nobody will, nobody will, your heads will all explode. Right, we'll lose people. Right, and I think for cell phones specifically, uh, Overpowered by Martin Blank, very okay. simple book to the point. And uh, Deborah Davis has uh, many books out. She's a PhD that also fights against the cell industry. Uh, I think if you started there, you'd be great. And then when you really want to see truly how disconnected we are as humans, you need to read this new book. Uh, this, this is one that I think everybody needs to read, whether you're interested in this or not. It's called Cosmos Sapiens. And it's written by a guy named John Hans. And basically what the book is, the gist of the book, it's the new updated version of Thomas Kuhn's Revolutions and Paradigm Change. It will tell you when you read the book, you'll realize just how bad the state of science is. Things that you guys fundamentally believe really are not supported by data. And he takes the argument to the nth degree. Um, and when you decide you really want to put your foot in the quantum realm after you read those, I'd say Roland Van Wick's book, uh, Light Sculpting Life. Uh, it's all about biophoton release. And 
Um, the one that I think is easy to read but it would be fascinating for people is Jim L. Khalili and uh, John Joy's book called uh, Life at the Edge. Life at the Edge. Yeah, and mitochondriacs, any, anything that Nick Lane has wrote is phenomenal. Uh, he's got a ton. Uh, there's probably five books in his series, but the classic one is Power, Sex, and Suicide. Uh, his latest book called The Vital Question has updated the, the, the errors that were written in Power, Sex, and Suicide. But um, in my view, the, probably the other thing to tell people is read anything that Doug Wallace has ever written. Watch every video that he has on the internet. Anytime he speaks in your era, you're an idiot if you don't go meet him and talk to him. He is going to win a Nobel Prize. He is leading the charge for mitochondrial medicine. And anybody who doesn't understand quantum biology, I'll just understand this. Your mitochondria is a quantum warehouse. It's a quantum computer that works with electrons, protons, and water. That's what it does. It is the ultimate quantum computer. It's the things that the people in the Bay Area want to build in technology, but they are so far from it, they, they couldn't even contemplate it. Right. And I think those books, 10 years ago, just so you know this, 10 years ago, only one of those books existed. Wow. Now wow. they're all here, and you don't have to go through all my crazy sites and Read all the things. You read those books and you're going to get a pretty good flavor for Jack Cruz. Just to follow this up, the final question is where exactly do you see ancestral health moving in the next five to ten years? Hopefully towards the light. <laughs> great question. Or great answer. I, I was going to say it's obviously mitochondria. Mitochondria is the future. It is. You know, there's a couple of guys in ancestral health, uh, Thomas Siegfried. Uh, he's close, but he's not far enough. You know, he still believes that ketosis is going to cure cancer. Ketosis is a half half cure. And I love what he's doing. I never want to down the guy, but ketosis without light is a, is a losing ballgame. It's just like chemotherapy. It's a, a half truth. And um, there's a lot of good people. The one thing I do want to end on, there's a lot of good people. Even the people in ancestral health and uh, the paleo community who I think People on the service who just know me from social media say, well, Jack doesn't like this guy or Jack doesn't like that guy. No, I like them all. There's there's nobody that I have met in ancestral health or in the paleo community that I truly dislike. The thing is that that I'm a pain in the ass. I like the truth, <laughs> the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And the thing that lights my fuse is when I know that something's a half truth, I'm going to want to bring you to my level. I will not stoop to your level. That's, mm -hmm. that's just one of those things about me that's not going to change. And my mind is always open. When somebody brings me something that I haven't thought about that I think is incredibly fantastic, kind of like what I shared with you today about the trait, dude, that's been on my mind for the last month since I heard it because it has major implications. That's the kind of stuff I like. And when I hear new stuff, I'm, I'm sick of the recycled stories about paleo brownies and bacon. I, I'm not into that anymore. Right. No, that's I, a small I, picture of things. That's not the elephant in the room that we're talking about, right? That, see, see you're, it sounds to me that you're, okay, so we have the, the quote-unquote biohacks you know, and all that, but that's those are the small things, right? We're not trying to talk about those. You, what I hear you mostly trying to say is educate yourself, James. Exactly. Educate yourself. 
Okay, I could tell you all the biohacks in the world, but when it comes down to it, we need you to get your nose right there in the dirt, get it dirty, start doing the work. James, when you when you learn it this way, when you, when you have skin in the game, dude, you don't have to be taught anymore. Then you become a starfish. Then on your podcast, two three years from now, you're gonna you're gonna have another guest on and say, okay, tell me how this links to this side or the other thing. And when they don't give you an answer, you know, okay, this is somebody who's on the surface. In other words, let me say this the right way so it doesn't come out negatively. You're an antenna. I'm an antenna. You're going to resonate with certain people. Certain people you're going to be drawn to and other people you're not going to be drawn to. Mm -hmm. One of the things that is my number one biohack for 2017, that it's been a long time coming, but Ruben and one of my friends, Neil, have finally got to me in December. People who you don't resonate with, remove them from your life. Why? Because you're wasting energy on them. And... It will focus your message. It's just like a magnifying glass with sunlight. Without the magnifying glass, it can't light you know, things on fire. But when you remove people who are sapping energy from you, you become more focused and you become a better person. You become a better doctor. You become a better podcaster. You know, and you and I have never talked before. I've actually enjoyed this podcast um, because of the questions and how fresh you are. And where you went with it, kind of how we rode the wave, so to speak, that's the way it should be. So that people can see how each one of us think and see. Um, to me, that's really important. Well, Jack, I just want you to know I, I never take these podcast episodes as a one-off. I genuinely try to build a connection with the people that I meet here. And, you know, I want to consider you a new friend and somebody that, you know, I can rely on to essentially feed this mitochondria-rich brain of mine some new material. So uh, thank you again for coming on. And I really hope maybe sometime in the future we can open up some new doors for people. So if you're interested in coming back, I'd love to have you back on. Sure. No problem. Just let me know. Absolutely. All right. Have a good rest of the day, Jack. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Ancestral Health Radio. If you like the podcast, then do me a quick favor and head over to iTunes to leave an honest rating and review of the show. This helps improve the show's ranking and visibility with other would-be hunter-gatherer gardeners just like yourself. But if you can't do that, I'll totally understand. We're still cool. But maybe you could share this episode on your favorite social media network, or at the very least, continue the conversation with myself and the tribe on the official Ancestral Health Radio Facebook page. But whatever you do, remember to check out all the resources mentioned earlier in this episode by reading the show notes at AncestralHealthRadio.com. Yep.